Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Financial Room 101. What would you most like to banish? I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's personal finance editor, bringing you this special edition of the FT Money Show, which we recorded live last weekend at the FT Weekend Festival, held in the leafy surrounds of Kenwood House in North London. Now, a variant on the TV show of the same name, Financial Room 101, we asked three esteemed panellists to pick a total of six objects that they would like to consign to the financial dustbin of history. Now, once they had made their selections, we then asked our audience, comprised of hundreds of FT readers sitting happily within the FT money tent, to act as the jury and vote them in or out. Now, I'm not going to spoil the show for you by saying that only two out of our panellists' six selections made it through. The audience gave them quite a good grilling, but there were some controversial choices in there, including cash and maths GCSE. So without further ado, listen to one of the most lively panel discussions at the festival, comprising of me, Martin Wolfe, the FT's chief economics commentator, Justin Urquhart-Stewart, the founder of Seven Investment Management, and Bobby Seagull, the maths teacher and FT columnist. If you were there, thanks very much for joining us. And if not, once you've listened to this, maybe we'll see you there next year. Welcome back to The Money Sense. So last year we brought you Universally Challenged, um, which was our um, kind of mocking uh, tribute to University Challenge. And this year we're bringing you Financial Room 101, because I'm sure you will agree there are many things um, in the financial world that are not very good. Um, FT Money has railed against them, um, many of them in opinion pieces. And I'm joined by um, a selection of the FT's finest columnists to um, select a total of six items that they they would like you to consider placing into Room 101. I say you, because unlike the television format, um, we will be asking the audience to have a show of hands um, at the end of each item to say, yes, I think it should go into Room 101, or no, I think it should be left out. Um, So without further ado, I will introduce you to your fine panel. Um, We have here this afternoon Martin Wolfe, the FT columnist, our chief economic writer. We have Justin Urquhart-Stewart, who is um, one of the co-founders of 7IM, sponsor of this tent and star of stage and screen. I'm sure you recognise him from his many television appearances where he is known affectionately as Mr. Red Braces. 
And last but not least, Bobby Seagull, the UK's most famous math teacher um, since his appearance on University Challenge. He is currently studying a PhD um, in maths anxiety, and your next series will soon be on TV. Yes, so uh, did anyone watch Monkman and Seagull's Genius Guide to Britain? Oh, there. Yeah. Did anyone watch Monkman and Seagull's Genius Guide to Britain Series 1? Yeah. yeah, so Series 2 is coming out in a few weeks. Yeah. And it's there all about famous inventors. <laughs> exactly. So more of a scientific spin than a mass spin. So, ladies and gentlemen, the panel. Okay, so we're going to start with Martin, because Martin has got, as you would expect, two rather controversial um, picks today. What is your first? Um, so, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be here, but I cannot think of a single reason why I'm in a panel on personal money. Um, um, but I was told I had to be by Claire, and I couldn't possibly say no. So here I am, and I, my job is to wind you up, and that I think is what I will succeed in doing. My first idea is, I'm sure, follows very naturally from your discussion with Merrin, who is a wonderful and brilliant person with whom I always disagree. Um, uh, and my proposal is... It's time to abolish cash. Oh. Uh, now, there are essentially four reasons for this. Um, two are all the bad things cash does for us. The main role of cash in the modern economy is to support, this is fairly low level, but it still does, a very substantial amount of tax evasion. How do you pay your builders, I wonder? Mm. Um, and what do you think happens with the tax returns of these people? Well, the answer is very clear. Lots of us pay our builders with cash. Obviously not me, but lots of us do. And, and they don't report taxes. And this allows a lot of self-employed people to escape the tax net. And we need the money. Have you looked at our public finances, particularly after the public spending review just produced by our idiot chancellor? Now... The second reason is, of course, much more serious, is that it's still the favoured tool of gangsters around the world. It's less of a problem here because our biggest notes are fantastically valuable. They're still quite valuable. But big notes... Ah, never mind that. So we need to get rid of cash because it supports tax evasion and gangsterism. And in any case... It's fantastically outmoded technology, and we should obviously all be using electronic systems. Now, two more positive and serious reasons for moving to a new money world, and I want to describe two of them. First of all, whether you like it or not, I think it is incredibly likely in the next recession that hits the Western world, and it is going to happen, and it, the world economy will look like this, we are going to have negative rates, and if we're going to have seriously negative rates, we can't let cash get in the way, because basically stabilizing our economies is more important than the return on money, which in any case is a sort of arbitrary notion. I can't see any reason why money per se should have a return. In fact, it's quite plausible. It would be better if it's negative. It will get everybody out of this. The second reason, to me, is more important, which is when we move out our cashless world, we're going to move into a world, I hope, in which we can all have accounts which are equivalent to cash with the central bank instead of our cash, 
the, its central bank liabilities. Why should banks alone have the privilege of holding central bank liabilities other than cash? So the quid pro quo politically is we can all have an account at the central bank. The central bank account will be safe really safe, which means the central bank no longer needs to guarantee the, leg the, the liquidity of the banking system. And more important, instead of the ridiculous way we do QE now, when the central bank wants to expand the money supply, it will plonk a nice £5,000 in every one of our accounts. We will all be better off, and the central bank will again be our bank instead of the bank's bank. Abolish cash. Wow. Well, thank you, Martin. A compelling argument there for abolishing cash. Compelling argument. Well, I have to say, I think I've spoken on behalf probably of, of many um, uh, people in the room who probably quite like having notes and coins. Are there, are there people here who do? Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, there are, there are a few. So you could argue that the biggest threat to abolishing cash is taking away um, our personal freedoms. Now, that could be the personal freedom to um, pay a builder um, in cash, but that could also be the personal freedom to feel like everything we spend is not being monitored and dissected by some kind of big data um, operation that can see that I've spent, you know, 50 pence um, on a packet of sweets or, you know, very, very small items... Our bank statements now, on average, are four times longer than they used to be a decade ago because of all of the myriad um, of contactless transactions that are, that are listed. So, so my fear is, 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 is data and privacy. But, but Bobby... You, you, you I'm can. not allowed to reply. Well, you, you can reply, or you, do you want to listen to Bobby and Justin? Just on this one. Okay. It's a completely illusory freedom. <laughs> uh, a few percent of all the transactions and of the money supply in a, uh, our economy is cash. It gives you the illusion, your freedom. I promise you, the system, and we can go into that, knows what you're doing. Okay, okay. Bobby and Justin, do you um, have any points that you want to be similarly demolished on? <laughs> okay. um, so what I, what I want to talk about is like the tangibility of money and, and why this is important. Okay. So before I moved into education, I used to be at a trader at a bank called... Lehman Brothers. Ooh. Yeah, I'll say that. Okay. Um, so there, again, my day job, buying and selling different asset classes. And on your screen, you see lots of lights, green and red, plus hundreds of thousands of dollars, minus hundreds of thousands of dollars. And again, that's as a bank. But again, as an individual, when I go and see, if I go to a shop, you know, on a shopping spree to Waterstone so, or, or WS Smith and buying lots of books, if I'm using my card... I could spend like excessive amounts, 100, 200, 300 pounds, and not realize I'm spending that much money. But if I've got cash, take it out of my wallet, I'm like, ah, do I really need to spend 200 pounds on books on insects? <laughs> so I think there's something about, the tan something about the tangibility of money. And again, even, like, hands up, who reads the FT on paper? Yeah, again, electronic digital things are better and perhaps for the future, but there's something about our generation. We'll still like the idea of smelling fresh paper, freshly minted currency. The smell. I'm standing up for freshly minted currency. Fresh, fresh paper. It's up. Oh no, it's a plastic. <laughs> fresh plastic. The smell of fresh plastic. Okay. Well, Justin, what? <laughs> but surely then, don't we revert to something else? Because you take away cash and say like Zimbabwe, what do you do? You actually find it suddenly being replaced by another set of cash, like the dollar will come in. Or, actually in Uganda where there was no currency at all, you end up with alternative currencies coming in. And it may be meat, clothes, anything you like. Anything that is tradable um, may not necessarily fit in your pocket. Uh, but you'll still go to revert to something else which is then not going to be regulated at all and could end up being uh, even more dangerous. 
like the Facebook Libra, perhaps. Well, maybe. Okay. So, Martin, your final sum up before we go to the vote. Tangibility. Well, if you have no self-control, maybe you have to have. <laughs> uh, Can't trust myself. Uh, the, it's very, very important. This is a. Uh, Justice made a quite an important con- confusion. I, <laughs> cash is not money. Okay. That's very important. About 95% of the money, and it's very difficult to define what money is, so I'm not going to go into that. There's books on it. But at the most, 5% of the money supply in most developed countries is cash. Uh, the, the stuff that you can really liquidate quickly isn't cash in terms of inflating way. It's money, I, the electronic stuff, which is already being created by the combination of commercial banks and the central bank. So... That will continue because there is no alternative except I'm going to make it much safer because it's going to be central bank money instead of crazy commercial bank money and other stuff. So, so we're not replacing the money of our country. We're replacing the cash component, which is, to quote a really great man, a barbarous relic of previous times invented very unsound to replace gold. We could have had this discussion about gold in the 18th century, invented in the 19th, LA 18th and 19th century, but 18th and 19th century. And now it's, a, it's as finished as the gold standard. Cash is irrelevant as gold. Get used to it. Wow. Okay. Well, audience, it's over to you. If you think that cash should go into Financial Room 101, please raise your hands. Ooh. My own brother's voting for it. <laughs> could, okay. Could, can people leave their cash then in a bucket on the <laughs> way out? <laughs> Very good. Okay, and then for the for the nose, if you think that cash should not go into financial room one oh one, please raise your hands. Ooh, it's it, it's close. I I Martin, I think the nose have it. It is possible. It is possible. <laughs> Too many people over 40 here. (laughs) Okay, so cash will not be going into Financial Room 101, but thank you, Martin, because it was a fantastic discussion, and it's going to make a brilliant article um, when I write it all up for the FT Money next week. Um, So, second on the block is Mr Bobby Seagull. What would you like to put into Financial Room 101? So, these are things that keep me up at night. Spiders... Taxes, the thought of Liverpool winning the Premier League. (laughs) These are my phobias. But for a lot of people, maths is a phobia. Look at the picture we got. Let me check. Sometimes with these images, they're not the the actual maths doesn't make sense. But um, fine, I'll give that one a remiss. Um, So again, in the UK, we have sort of a society where people think you can either be an arts person or a sciences person. Actually, there was a famous 1950s debate by a man called C.P. Snow, and he was a scientist-turned-novelist. And he said, uh, it's called the two-cultures debate. He said, in Britain, we're split into the arts and then the sciences. And actually, having this distinct separation prevents us from solving many world problems. Because people are very comfortable saying, oh, yes, I'm a, I'm a great uh, poet, but I, but I can't deal with numbers. And what I want to say to you, actually, is that numbers and maths are very important. Actually, indeed, phobia about mathematics 
can lead to people having, I, I think they go sort of throughout their lives thinking, oh God, I can't deal with numbers. And whether it's their bank statement, whether it's planning a holiday, whether it's trying to check how long to cook a chicken for, anything with numbers, they have that visceral fear. And I'll give you a question to demonstrate how challenging people in the UK find mathematics. So imagine you're earning nine pounds an hour, yeah? It's nine pounds an hour. And then your boss gives you an inflation-busting 5% increase. So your boss says nine pounds an hour, and you're given a 5% increase. What's the new amount? Do we have anyone brave enough to shout it out? 9.45. Reasonable question, 10%, 90p, half of that, 45p. Should perhaps add a couple of zeros for the hourly rate of most people in the Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 9.45. And that's not a difficult question. And yet you'd be shocked to hear that in the UK, 50% of adults can't get this correct, even with a calculator. 50%. So again, in this room, there might be people thinking, oh, I'm not very good at maths. But actually, you're probably quite good at maths compared to the majority of people in the UK. And part of the reason people find maths difficult is they have that phobia, something about the subject that makes them think, oh, God, it's maths. And again, even myself, if I'm on television or radio and they ask me a question on the spot. So actually, I was filming Celebrity Mastermind on Wednesday and John Humphreys had a go at me about my Radio 4 puzzles. And I thought he was going to ask me some maths questions. And even myself, as someone that's very competent at maths and confident, I for a second had, oh God, am I going to get this maths question wrong on, like, on television? So there's something about maths and phobia that I really detest. So if I could banish something to... Um, Room 101, it would be mass phobia. Okay, okay. So, Justin and Martin, do you have any... Um, can, can there possibly be any arguments about destroying mass phobia? Well, what you need to be able to do, surely, is actually turn it to the one thing that is, uh, gets most of our attention. Make it interesting, make it entertaining. Then, actually, you'll get someone actually saying, I quite enjoy this. But if you say mass to most people, they automatically groan because it's one of those things we've hated all the way through, because not very few of us had a decent teacher. If you were available, it would have been very helpful, but for the rest of us, <laughs> until the invention of the calculator, we were stuck. Now we don't learn maths, we learn how to put a battery in a calculator. Yes, well, well, well this, this, this is certainly true. Um, Martin, do you have a, a, a critique of maths phobia? Um, I think, uh, Bobby, it's just has uh, chosen something absolutely perfect because if there's anybody who votes against this, I would love to meet and talk to that person later. (laughs) Presumably, the only reason why you'd be in favour of mass phobia is that it gives a competitive advantage to to you if you're actually more borderline numerate. So you're a miserable, Grinch-like person who wants everybody to fail in order that you can succeed. Anybody of a reasonably generous temperament, which is clearly everybody here, uh, um, even if you are over 40, uh, um, would be in favour of getting rid of mass phobia. But I don't think it's a phobia. Um, that is, yeah, I mean, there are lots of people who are phobic. Um, but I, and I'm not in the category of people who find this incredibly difficult. I wouldn't do what I do if I, if I, if I did. But I believe that people are phobic about mass because it's difficult. Mm. And it's not natural for us. We didn't evolve to do this. So the question is not whether we can get, should get rid of math phobia. I would love every human being to be conceivably brilliant and marvellous. But we aren't. So the question is, how? 
Okay, well, and certainly I think, you know, the credit card companies and the energy companies who are overcharging us, the insurers who push up our premiums each time, they're certainly benefiting um, from from maths phobia, so we may get some voting against. So, Bobby, it is time. If you would like to send maths phobia into Financial Room 101, please raise your hands. I think it's going in. And if you, would, if you are a banker, um, an insurer, or, or in Martin's word, an, an evil type of Grinch person, um, and you do not want to see um, fear of maths going to room 101, please raise your hands. Oh, I can see you. Oh. <laughs> Excellent. <clears throat> Brilliant. Right, so bang! Our first, um, our first victim for room 101 is in. Thank you very much, Bobby. Well done. Okay, so Justin... What would you like to send into Financial Room 101? I did a calculation, which was three years ago, but it will not have changed, that actually looking through the retail world of investing and all its different types, I came up with 248 different charges. Wow. Um, now, a lot of them actually turned out actually duplicates of the same thing, but just were given another title. Not only that, we make some inquiries as to actually what these uh, things actually mean, and you'll find that there'll be not very clear definitions. And then talk to the people who are actually supposed to be providing those things to you, and they don't understand it. To the extent that actually you'll find... What's that technical term that we use sometimes? Lying, it probably comes into it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, this is well, I'm a part of an industry which has got a great privilege. We've been asked to look after people's money. And yet, somehow, we have the inability to be able to tell people what's happening with it, how it's going properly, and how much they are paying. And I don't just mean the annual management charges, but all the additional things. Okay. One uh, government uh, bank I know, probably would be a government, one bank I know managed to introduce an inactivity fee. So you get charged for doing something, then you get charged for doing nothing. Brilliant. <laughs> I, I wish I could convince the FT to um, pay us an inactivity fee. So, so we, 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 can in fact, we, we can in fact change the, the, the picture now because what you are wanting to ban is, of course, hidden fees, um, which are the bane of every investor's life. So, I mean, the regulators have been doing quite a bit to try and expose hidden fees, but they've kind of made things a little bit more complicated with things like the wonderfully named MIFID 2. Yeah, I mean, it's, but it's like... Uh, I come from a profession I was ex- astonishingly poor at in the world of a barrister. When you actually got life was confusing, there was some chance that someone might be understanding what you're on about. It's very simple. You revert to Latin. <laughs> and that way you're able to make sure no one's actually with you at all. And even some people catch you up because you've conjugated things incorrectly. But apart from that, you'll actually go through, therefore, with your investment structures and investment fees, lots and lots of different elements being added in the entire time, all to take away from your cost. And you don't understand what benefits you're getting from it. And even there are then, and a classic example of this would be, we had to report one particular firm to the regulator for it, and I'm fairly certain absolutely nothing happened, was the, when you're trading, there is a spread between the buying and selling price. Quite normal. But sometimes these spreads, you have no idea what they are, what the normal spread would be. Some of the share trading you see, they've got spreads bigger than a packet of Marmite. And, and people need to know that, and they haven't been educated about it. That doesn't surprise me. But more to the point, the industry hasn't either. And it's not as the industry ripping itself, uh, ripping the clients off, you'll find that the industry cannot even be consistent amongst itself. So the regulator's trying to do something about it, especially giving an all in charge, but that's not enough. Okay. Bobby and Martin, do you have anything to say about hidden investment fees? Um, I think one of the, um, well, one of the lines I've written in the column of which I'm most fond was written in 2000. And seven, I think in the late autumn, in which I said Britain's tragedy 
is that it has a comparative advantage in a value-subtracting industry. Um, and, uh, I, and I retain this view. Now, how do you make a value-subtracting industry work? Um, you use a lot of hidden fees. How else? Um, in the technical term, in the economics literature, is rent extraction. Now, how could you be in favor of it? Since, obviously, I agree with the proposition. Um, well, I suppose the argument I would make in favor of it is making more specific the general point I made, is that the, the very fine incomes created by these hidden fees, because if people realized them and they were eliminated, their income would go down, is, of course, what supports very many enormously fine FT readers. And without, <laughs> and without these enormously fine FT readers, there would be no FT. There would, there would then be no decent newspaper left in Britain and not many in the world and this will be a very bad thing and therefore we should be in favour of continued rent extraction and, <laughs> and, and that can only happen if we do it through hidden fees because if everybody ever understood at least a third of their return is disappearing into the pockets of people who are subtracting value they'd get quite upset so be very careful what you wish for, because if you get what you want, next year there may be no FT Weekend Festival. <laughs> well, uh, I think you deserve a round of applause. Um, like, for example, with maths, people may not like maths and say, oh, let's ban it. So we, we banned maths phobia, slightly different. In the same way, we don't like investment charges, so the responsibility is on us as consumers to stand up and fight back against them. So not in terms of banning it, but making sure that we're more educated and pushing on fund managers to explain to us what clearly the charges are. Because again, if I picked up the phone, man, phone to a fund manager, I could demand, I'm giving you £10,000, I need to understand exactly what the charge is. So it's not the charge's fault per se, it's the fault of us as consumers. We should be more demanding of them. Okay, well said, Bobby. Right, it's time to put it to the vote. Hidden fees, should they go into financial room 101 and possibly risk the future of the FT? <laughs> All vote now. Okay, okay. And anybody want to not ban hidden fees? A couple of hands? Okay, a couple of hands. Nice to know that there are a few. Well, in which case, congratulations. Hidden fees goes into financial room 101. Hurrah! Now, the next one. We're going to have to speed up a little bit here. We're going to run out of time. Martin, you have... Um, quite a controversial um, proposal to do with the world of fund management um, again, but more specifically um, to do with the type of funds you think retail investors should be putting their money into. Yes, I thought about this, and in a way it, it follows from what we've just discussed. So we know the following propositions. With... Um, uh, a, I'm not going to go into the technicalities, but well-structured index funds should do pretty close to as well as the relevant market in average. That's pretty obvious. And they're pretty simple structures, so their fees, hidden and otherwise, really ought to be very low. And in general, they are. Um, if the universe of index funds do as well as the market on average then the universe of actively managed funds can't do better than the market. Pretty obvious. And they clearly have, because they're very expensive to operate, large fees. So on average, and overall, 
the universe of active funds is going to earn lower returns than the universe of index-linked funds. That's a sort of mathematical necessity. We don't need very many active managers, actually. There's obviously is a role for active management. We want it to happen because it helps to make the markets less inefficient. I won't go into all the problems there, but basically that's true. But there's no reason why ordinary small investors on whom the fees are loaded, inevitably, they're always regressive, highly regressive, um, should bear any of that cost. But most small investors don't understand this. Why should they? Because the process I've gone through is modestly complicated. So my view is very, very simple. We need some serious paternalism in the financial system. I have many, many ideas in that area. But the one I put forward here is that anybody who has investing £200,000 or less may not buy an active fund, period. Okay, so if you have less than £200,000 to invest, you should not buy an actively managed fund, um, Martin says. Bobby, you're eager to step in. So I'd say, so Martin's saying that people that have funds of less than £200,000, they don't understand markets, they don't know what they're doing. I personally, this is a patronising to people. Yeah, less than £200,000. <laughs> uh, so suddenly at this threshold, when you're on £199,999, 99p, you're unsophisticated. And when you get that one penny more, you're on, on £200,000. In Martin's world, you suddenly become sophisticated. I don't think that's the case. Okay. Um, I think it's ultimately we should give users choice. If people want to invest in, in managed funds, that's their choice. If they choose not to, that's their choice. Again, we shouldn't be paternalistic and tell people in the markets, this is what you should do. Okay. Well, I would, um, before Justin kicks in... The we, fund managers would agree with you. <laughs> it's, I, I think the paternalism, in fact, needs to go further because it's not just about actively managed funds and passive funds. We've written in the FT this year about some horrific um, investment scandals where people have been especially tempted by products like mini bonds or peer-to-peer ISAs where they haven't quite understood the, the risks and returns and they've lost a lot of money and invariably they are the kind of people who cannot afford... Um, to lose a lot of money and should never have been um, attracted by those products in the first place. But that's just my two penneth. Um, Justin? Well, cer- certainly that should get picked up by anyone trying to give you any advice at all to see whether you are suitable or bi- willing to be able to take that risk and afford that loss, which could be there as well. So that's, that's the easier part of it. It's those people trying to do it for themselves who haven't had the uh, education and understanding coming from that to enable them to reach a, a proper decision. So to me, it's not just active or passive because actually there are just different types of investing, quite often maybe the blend of those overall. So, for example, uh, tra- having something that is tracking uh, one of the large indices, we'll all understand that. But you'll get some indices in countries where there is barely a proper market anyway. So actually, what are you buying into? What size is in there? There are some very talented active managers, not very many of them. Some would like to tell them they're extremely talented and are real stars. This year's star is next year's tank top. Be very wary. <laughs> Um, But there are some who've got a track record of being able to not be stars, but do it consistently over time. Mm -hmm. But the passives are there also to provide an alternative to it. No, not just an alternative, but to be with as part of that portfolio. So it's blending those together. The good thing about the passive funds is they've reduced the cost significantly. We've even now got one or two examples where they've gone to zero, apart from the hidden costs. Um, and uh, so uh, the investment management firms are going to have to sharpen their game. Because if you're going to say you're a good active manager... You're going to have to prove it. Okay. Um, Martin, final point? I actually think it's pretty clear from the evidence and the underlying theory that a huge proportion of the outperformance of active funds is random. 
um, survivor bias endlessly, you're just fooling yourself. And the other point, which is very important, you talked about having a good financial advisor, if any such exists. Um, but that really is regressive. Uh, if you've got £200,000, you're going to be very, very fortunate if you find that good financial advisor. I have changed my view on this subject fundamentally. 30 years ago, I was young too once, I would have gone absolutely with you. But now I think that the very substantial part of this industry for relatively small funds, people who are not sophisticated, not because they're stupid, but because they don't spend their time thinking about this rubbish, these are exploitative systems and we need more paternalism. And that, by the way, is I'm absolutely certain the way politics will go. Okay, right, we're ready for the vote. So if you would like to vote with Martin and say that, yes, retail investors with less than £200,000 should not be able to invest in actively managed funds, please raise your hands. Okay. (laughs) And if you agree with Bobby and think that restricting retail investors into what they can and cannot invest in is you know, hugely patronising and overly paternalistic. Please raise your hands. Oh, it's close. It's close. <laughs> okay. But I did choose two really quite controversial propositions, so I must say that I think the audience is exceptionally intelligent. Oh, well, thank, well a round of applause for the audience. Fantastic, fantastic. And it's, as you know... We like to hear both sides of the debate um, in the FT Money section, which is why we have four columnists who are in favour of Brexit. Anyway, <laughs> moving swiftly on. Mr Bobby Seagull. I won't comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> but we also have Martin. That's the, the th- balance. Exactly. The, the thing that you would next like to propose is almost as controversial as Martin's Yeah, choice. so this is actually risk putting me out of a job. So I want to ban GCSE maths. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry, sorry. Okay. Why? So, firstly, let's look at what is the purpose of the GCSE maths. Part of it is to prepare students for further studies. So moving on to A-level, equipping them with the skills so they can do subject physics, chemistry, biology, economics. But also the other purpose is, for, the, for people that choose not to progress with maths, is to make them sure that they're numerate and competent. So let's look at the GCSE results. So two-thirds of people will get a pass. So nowadays they've changed it from letters to numbers. So it used to be A-stars to use, and you're aware now it's num- numbers, now nine to one. In a few years it will change back, and soon we'll have colours instead. Yeah, <laughs> who knows what will happen. But for the one-third of people that fail maths, and this is what I think is the issue is, those people will leave school thinking they cannot do maths. And again, what this means is they'll be walking around their lives with their children, putting people off numbers, anything numerical. And again, I would say these people come to me and say, oh, Bobby, though, I don't have a maths brain. And my retort to that is, if anyone ever been to a maternity ward, you never see a nurse with a clipboard going, this child has a maths brain, that one doesn't, that one looks like they could have a maths brain. Absolutely not. As a society, we're conditioned to think about maths in a particular, sadly, it's a negative way, And for these third of people that fail maths GCSE, they leave thinking, I cannot do numbers. And again, they'll be spreading their doom and misery about mathematics for the rest of their lives. So I think we need to abolish GCSE maths and find a new way of sort of assessing people and preparing people for numeracy. 
Okay, very well said, Bobby. Justin and Martin, what would you like to, what holes would you like to pick in this argument? Well, apart from the timing exercise, I'm now appear to be six years too late for this. <laughs> it would still be easier to have gone through. Um, no, it's not so much. It's surely it's the issues behind it in terms of the construction of mathematics, understanding the logic there. That's what we need to be able to teach. And again, it comes back to making it interesting. Most of us had to go through utter horror because not only did we probably not understand it, it was incredibly dull. And also, there's not very much in the curriculum in GCSE maths at the moment, which is to do with personal finance. So it could be overhauled and improved. Um, well, a tedious thing, like teaching people, you know, particularly now because the rules have all changed and continue to change, about pensions. How much money do you think you are going to need? And nobody has a clue until it's too late. <laughs> Martin, do you have any strong views on mathematics? I was wondering whether this is an argument against examinations rather than an argument against uh, uh, um, mathematics examinations. I think the propositions that are being made are essentially two. People People shouldn't be allowed to fail, and there are clearly very serious consequences if they are, if they do fail. But I really can't see how a society like ours can't operate without some form of certification mechanism. Now, that's a very big issue, I, but that's it. And then there's the second point, is that it's particularly damaged to give, damaging to give people the sense that they're failing in maths. I'm not completely sure. I mean, I think coming out of school, being aware that you're illiterate, and there are quite a lot of people who leave school functionally literate, is surely even more damaging than emerging functionally innumerate because you can't pass English. So I think the real criticism here is whether we have an education system that is designed to ensure, and we can get into a lot of discussion on this, my wife is an expert in this area, um, to ensure that everybody ultimately gets to some reasonable standard. This might mean modification of the exam structure. No other country in the world has a major examination system at the age of 16. There's no reason why it should happen at that stage. It's a British nonsense. It's linked with the British specialization nonsense. But some sort, and many countries don't have an exam system as such, abitur-type structure. So we can think about that. But it is about the whole examination system as a whole and the way we structure schooling, I think, more than about maths. Okay, right, well, we're ready to go to the votes. So, GCSE maths. If you agree with Bobby Siegel, a maths teacher, and think that GCSE maths should be sent to Financial Room 101, as it currently stands, please raise your hands now. And if you think that GCSE maths should stay outside, please raise your hands now. Thanks thanks for giving me a job. I still have a job on Monday now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. Okay. That's very good. Now, we've got one more item. We're going to have to be um, slightly quick because we have got five minutes um, left until the changeover time. So, Justin, what is the final thing which you would like to put into financial room? Uh, The latest, most useless product my darling industry has managed to invent, the Junior ISA. So you can now save money for your darling children and let them save it until they're 18. And when they're 18, they're going to enjoy this. Look, it's going to be sniffed, smoked or drunk. That's it. (laughs) Just at the moment when you're beginning to get some benefit of compounding after 18 years, just when you're beginning to see some sensible returns going on, you're going to get rid of it. 
this is a classic example of politicians interfering. We had the PEP system, which kept on changing, but then we had ISIS. What's the difference? Oh, it's a big... Di- no, they're not just tinkering with the same stuff. What you need is actually a longer-term process of helping people to save and invest, not just for them, but for the family, reducing those costs, but uh, understanding that giving people lump sums that are probably one of the most difficult times of their age... I speak as a person behavior when I was 18, uh, that actually it's a waste of time for everybody. But the industry makes money out of it. Okay, so a controversial choice. I know that there are many um, money readers, because you, you, you email me um, and send me messages on Twitter, who have serious reservations about the junior ISA. You like the sound of it, but you're very worried about it converting um, to the child's control upon the age of 18. But I would say there's one very simple method which um, the Barrett-Robertson household has deployed um, in this regard. You simply do not tell the child um, <laughs> about the junior ISA. Every now and again, you give them a form to sign. You know, you give them enough of these things, they don't really understand um, what they're doing and then you very carefully um, hoard it away for, um, for them and at the same time spend a lot of your own personal energy educating them um, about the value of money so that they um, when a time when they can be entrusted um, with their own um, money in the future they will know what to do but that but you know we know what we're going to start seeing is not just adverts on television for ppi or for bad pensions it'll be for bad parents if you've got bad parents come to us we will be able to sue on your behalf Well, I dread the day that that happens. Bobby, do you have any strong thoughts about the junior ISA? Again, I think, of course, students, when they get money at 18, they will spend some money on alcohol and parties, etc. But once they've spent it, they still need to study. They still need to buy books. They still need to think about their living expenses. And having the junior ISA still gives them a chance at 18 to have a little bit of cash that they can actually spend at university. Okay. Martin, do you have any strong views? No, I've never really thought... It's wonderful to have a topic on which I've never had a, uh, a, a moment's thought. Um, uh, so I'm very happy to abolish this thing, whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> my own view is our fiscal treatment and indeed our f- organisation of savings in this country, this is a subject on which I thought a lot, is such a comprehensive and colossal mess that it will be but a drop in the ocean, but one might as well start somewhere. Okay. Well, we shall proceed to our final vote um, for this session. If you agree with Justin Urquhart-Stewart from 7IM and think that junior ISAs should enter Financial Room 101, all vote now! And if you think that junior ISAs are indeed a a fantastic form of um, legalised tax evasion, all vote now! (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm sorry, Justin, but it's not going to go into the box. Thank you so much for coming along and taking part in this session. We will try and make it into a podcast so you can send it on to anybody who wasn't here. Please give a round of applause for our illustrious panel. Well, that's it for this special edition of the FT Money Show. If you like what you hear and you'd like to get in touch with us, perhaps you disagree and think that cash should have gone into Financial Room 101. We are all ears. Our email address is money at ft.com. You can follow us on Twitter for the latest breaking news updates at FT Money. Or why not join our LinkedIn community? Search for FT Your Money. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.